Welcome to the Pirate's Eye Podcast, produced by the Seton Hall Alumni Engagement and Philanthropy Department. I'm your host, Bianca Velez, fellow pirate of the class of 2010, and each month I'll be sitting down with an alumnus to chat about their career, their life journey, and the role that Seton Hall played in getting them where they are today, or continues to play. My guest this month is Dr. Samson Davis, this year's Seton Hall Most Distinguished Alumnus. Dr. Davis is the co-author of three New York Times bestselling books, ER physician with over 20 years of experience, co-founder of the Three Doctors Foundation, and so much more. Dr. Davis shares with us in this episode how his accomplishments began as a promise between high school friends that was brought into life form while at Seton Hall. Take a listen. Dr. Davis, I want to welcome you to the Pirate's Eye podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a a pleasure and honor to be joining you today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I want to jump into what members of the university community know you as, which is one of the three doctors. And I really want to jump into that because for those listening who don't already know the three doctors. I want you to take us through that story. But I cannot start this conversation without first congratulating you because this month you will be receiving the Seton Hall Most Distinguished Alumnus Award. So congratulations and tell me how does that feel? Thank you. Thank you. It feels great. I mean, the award, you know, the honor, the acknowledgement, many are one. You know, I, I really feel that it is a perfect title for what I stand for and, and for what I represent. There's so many of us, but we usually all come together for one collective purpose, something that's true and dear to you personally and community-wise. So it's a, it's a great honor. I'm humbled by it and proud to be um, receiving the, the award, definitely. Absolutely. So... How did we get here? You're being honored by Seton Hall. What is your Seton Hall story? How did you end up at Seton Hall? Walk us through that. The journey. <laughs> the journey. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm from close by neighborhoods. I'm from Newark, New Jersey. I grew up not too far from Seton Hall University. I attended a small school called University High School in Newark where I had two friends who I met, uh, Dr. George Jenkins and Dr. Ramik Hunt. And in high school, we made this promise and packed that uh, promise after a seminar um, that was presented by Seton Hall about careers in health and science. And so we made this pact we, we, to become doctors, believe it or not, in high school. And we went to Seton Hall, we interviewed, and uh, we were accepted into the program there at Seton Hall University, the uh, pre-medical, pre-dental plus program. And it's it's often say like our pact, our promise to become doctors was born in Newark, but the birth of it was at Seton Hall. Like we cannot tell the story. I cannot tell the story of becoming a doctor and the and the roads and the sort of uh, transitions and the development without Seton Hall being a part of the fabric. It is as true to our story as as anything else. So uh, Seton Hall played the. The backdrop, the theme, the set, if you will, of, of uh, my story and the progression of and development of going down the road of becoming 
uh, a doctor, everything from Bowling Hall to Xavier mm-hmm. Hall to sort of being <laughs> on the grain and, and <laughs> you know, just everything um, to, you know, you can think of uh, uh, started at Seton Hall University. So it was really the one, it was the place where not only the birth, but just the development, it was such a haven uh, to sit there and to kind of be there and to develop there and to deal with some of the questions and difficulties and, and, Winning moments, uh, it all took place there at the hall. Right. I have to tell you that when you tell me you and your friends came into Seton Hall already with this promise of becoming doctors, what I envision are three young men that are so disciplined, so in line, so focused on their end goal that it is study, study, and study. Tell me what your experience was really like. Do I have it right or do I have it completely wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't think you, you don't have, you're probably like, it's a a hybrid, right? It's it's a bit (laughs) of a, uh, it's a bit on point. Like we were disciplined, but it wasn't really, it wasn't that structured for us. I mean, a part of this was simply, in, in, in terms of visualization, survival. It was just simply survival. We, we came from, we rooted from humble beginnings. We had a lot of struggle, a lot of strife, a lot of challenges. So this was opportunity. And uh, we said to ourselves, why not go for it? I mean, we had been given so many challenges prior. Why not just put this on the list of things that we can aim for to see if we can achieve to make something out of nothing, really? Right. Um, you know, Newark at that time we were growing up, it, it was a lot of struggle. There still is a lot of struggle yeah. there, but it has developed a lot. You know, the, the downtown front footprint of Newark is, is beautiful. There's a lot of building happening there. There's a lot of residential complexes being uprooted there. So it's a lot of kind of uh, work being done to develop the area. But when we were growing up, there was just a lot of crime and despair. So for us, this was opportunity, right. and uh, we were going to grab a hold of the opportunity. Now, did we know that I know the first thing about becoming a doctor? I had no clue, no clue, nothing at all. But I said, "Hey, I, you know, I think this is something that I would enjoy. This is something that I I like. I like helping people, and so let me see what happens here. Let me just put in the work." And and so the focus came because of the sort of struggle and the need to survive, but it was our friendship that bond that really helped us to get through those moments of self-doubt, uncertainty, Mm. um, feeling kind of uh, dysthymic and not excited about the moment, feeling down about certain certain circumstances. Uh, It was those moments where I could lean on my two friends to say, hey, you know, I'm not feeling my best. And they would say, it's gonna be okay. You know, we're gonna push through this. And so since we were rooted from a common denominator, that made it even better because they were able to identify with some of my struggles as I were with theirs. Right. And, um, and so I think that kind of was the sort of the, the uh, inner workings of what made this possible. And, and so the discipline just came about because, uh, you know, of course, we took, interestingly enough, it's called Survivor's Skills. And the Survivor's Skills course, I sit, sit in front of the class, rewrite your notes, um, get to know your professor, you know, things of that nature. And it was very clear when they said freshman orientation, look to your left, look to your right. Someone is not going to be here next, next semester. Mm. 
And uh, and I was like, well, that can't be me because I have no way to go. So I have to right. figure this out. And um, so I think it was more of a need to get it done than it was discipline. You understand? Yeah. It was more of a, I, it was almost like this own, this own obstacle course to get this done. Like there was no other option. Right. Um, survival was paramount. And so that's where the work ethic sort of rooted from and the discipline followed. I realized, okay, this is required me to sit, rewrite my notes, study a lot. Okay, now I get it. And so I'm going to meet that challenge. And, and that's where the discipline sort of came in. Right. Yeah. Now, in all of this structure and discipline and learning how to navigate the challenges of pursuing this type of career, was there more to your Seton Hall experience besides the academic setting? Or was oh, were you were the three of you strictly academic and that was it? <laughs> no, we were we were uh, you know our philosophy was work hard, play hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is where I'm trying to get. <laughs> so it was it was part of that, right? So if you work too hard, you burn out. If you play too hard, you get kicked out, right? Mm-hmm. So we had a a pretty much healthy work sort of fun balance to what we were doing there at the hall. Like we got our work done, don't get me wrong, but we would hang out, you know, in the dining hall. We would go to parties at night that would happen. Right. And we would, um, you know, play hoops all the time, lifting weights and exercising. So we had a very dynamic uh, college experience. We would go to other college campuses, so their parties and their events and their gatherings. So and we were by far... I, I don't think anyone looked at us because I think there's a perception of science majors like, oh, they're so rigid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh no, we were nothing like that. Like you would, you would never bet. People would often ask us like, how do you guys do it? Like you don't see it. Like you guys are at every party, you know. But so the discipline came in. Like I would go to the party from like ten to eleven, and then go back to my dorm. You know, like I, I had to be up early for whatever class it was. So. We just were conscious of every move we made, but at the same time, we were definitely colorful. I mean, college was fun, right. a, a lot of fun. But, but what I think scared me the most was the fact that I knew if I partied too much and didn't get my grades, I wouldn't be back the next semester. So I was like, man, I gotta make sure I take care right. of this before I could get with that. Right. And so that was uh, that was the way that we pursued it. But yeah, I mean, on campus, off campus. We were definitely adventurous. Um, I mean, we had other hobbies, other things that we explored that we enjoyed doing. So, you know, but we got our work done. Yeah. I think that's what's the message here. But it wasn't anything like the, the perceived notion of like, okay, these guys were in their dorm rooms, had in the books all the time. Right. I know that was far from the all stretch right. of what it was. It was, it was <laughs> some balance. You definitely lived the college experience. Sounds like it. Okay. Oh, by far. By far. <laughs> Now, something you said, I think is so important and is something that rings true for a lot of alumni, which is having that sense of community, right? That bond. And in this case, you had that bond with Dr. Jenkins and Dr. Hunt. That bond continued past the gates of Seton Hall. So talk to me a little bit about what that journey was like after you guys graduated Seton Hall and then really started to hit the ground running in terms of pursuing your your careers as doctors? Yeah, I mean, like, those are my brothers. You know, we say brothers from another mother uh, and father, right? So they, um, these are guys that I've known since I was 12 and 14 years old. We went to college together and we're roommates and, 
you know, we were sweet mates. I lived, me and Ramik shared a room and, and George lived on the other side of Bowling Hall, uh, the bathroom there, <laughs> as, as a sweet mate, you know, and, and so we we did everything together as a uh, as a collective team. We were pretty much our own sort of unit, if you will, our own fraternity. And um, and after we left Seton Hall, we, we went off to, we applied to medical and dental school and Lo and behold, we were accepted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I went to Robert Wood Johnson, which is now Rutgers Medical School. Um, me and Ramik went to Rutgers Medical School in Piscataway. George stayed at New Jersey Dental School in Newark. And uh, we did you know, four years of rigorous coursework and skills and studying to become doctors and dentists. We graduated. And we didn't realize we were going to graduate together when we graduated and meet the same ceremony. It was just a beautiful moment because all our families were there and, and just to celebrate that journey of eight years, you know, four years of college, four years of medical and dental school, it was just a triumphant moment. And to have our families together cheering as one unit, people were, were looking like, well, who hired the cheering squad you know, to be part of these young men's uh, walk across the stage? And so, uh, you know, so that was great. And then... You know, we went off to our respective residencies, and and from there, it's just our story just kind of, again, it was another phase of development with our story. From there, is this uh, the media got a hold of the story, and it just really snowballed into something special, something uh, cosmic that we never expected, that we never planned for, for our story to sort of gain such notoriety that that it has. And I can see why. I think. As you're sharing this, what's amazing for me is to think about how young you guys were when you made this promise to one another, right? And we know that as young people, we may think one way about life and we may have one perspective. And then when we start to go through it, we're like, uh, we had the wrong idea, backtrack, pivot, changing, changing gears, changing lanes. But you guys at such a young age made this promise to one another you continued through the obstacles, through the difficulties, through the ups and downs, and persisted and actually made it come true. And it didn't change. And it didn't change for any of you, right? You guys stuck together and made it happen, which is what I think is so amazing to think about these young minds making this decision. And then as you're going through your young adulthood and your adulthood, these eight years of schooling, you were able to continue on and make it actually happen, which from right. the outside, I'm listening and I'm like, how did one of you not drop off? <laughs> you know, yeah. we hear so often the story of students going into college thinking that they're going to pursue one career or they pursue one major and halfway through they switch. They realize that's not their passion. It wasn't for them. But you guys you guys actually made it. So I can see why that story really took hold. I can see why people really took interest in that story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and there were moments, don't, don't get me wrong, there were moments where I think I probably was the one who wanted to quit <laughs> the most. Um, just because like, I had a, a, a feeling for business and a business acumen. So I was like, oh, I should go into business, I should go into business. Right. And, um, but with medicine, you still get to do that. And then uh, Ramik and George, they wanted to do music. So they're like, oh, we should do music. And so we, we had those saying, I think we're not 
an anomaly in that sense. Like we had those same curiosities and we had those moments of self-doubt. We had those moments of the grass is definitely greener on the other side thinking uh, concepts. But at the same time, like we, we never lost sight of the inception of what we promised each other. Right. Right. And it wasn't a promise of like, here's your contract. You sign this. And if you don't deliver, <laughs> we're going to come visit you. Right. It was more like this. These are my brothers. These are my friends. These are guys that I made a promise to. And I have to hold myself accountable. I have to hold myself accountable for that. And so what, what I think why our story really took off is so many different reasons. But one of the things that sticks out to me is a very simple gesture that any of us can do. Mm-hmm. Any of us can do. But life happens, right? And life gets in the way of things in time. And, and, and we, have the, the, we have the power to change our course. Right. And so what we did here is that we stayed true to the simple promise that we made that we were going to see this to the end. Now, after that, it's on you. Whatever you wanted to do after that is your, your choice and your decision. But we're going to see this thing to the very end. And, uh, and it wasn't without struggle. We had moments, but at the same time, we just kept pursuing, we kept persisting. And I think part of it too is like, not only did we want to do it, say we did it, but we wanted to do it because it was something that we wanted to deliver to our community, something that we wanted to show others from where we came from, that this could be done. Right. You know, I think so many people from our communities in which we were born and reared, um, are looked upon or, or they feel like they're not capable, not even looked upon. They don't feel like they're capable of making something like this possible. And, uh, you know, so we took something that seemed impossible and we made it something that is I'm possible. Right. Right. I love that. I love that. And so let's get into your medical career. You have been an ER physician for 20, 20 plus years now. You've, you shared with me that you've been an ER physician pretty much all over New Jersey. <laughs> what yeah. has that journey been like? You know, the, the years go by fast. That much I could, I could tell you. And I think of it as chapters in a book. Like you just dog ear each chapter that you read. And, you know, there's the college chapter. Dog ear that. There's the medical professional school chapter. You dog ear that. And there's the residency chapter and then there's the i'm now a full-fledged physician and you know, 20 years you blink and it really goes by fast i mean it's it's nothing like being in college where or professional school college was fine professional school was okay <laughs> <laughs> so um but you know sitting there and looking at it now it goes by fast but to be an er physician it's it what I realized with this discipline, it matches my personality. It's, it's kind of organized chaos. Like you're, you're on the front lines, you're dealing with anything that sort of comes through the front doors from heart attacks to strokes to um, headaches to sore throats to flu to um, gastrointestinal bleeds to COVID. I mean, anything and everything is possible uh, to come through the door. And then so I think for me, it's like I enjoy being able to step in and make a difference. I, I think that's what my life has been, that people have stepped into my life to make a difference, make a change for me for the better in moments, not sustaining moments. Like they came in, they, they were a catalyst, they said a few words, they, they, they lent a hand, they said things that sort of changed my course for the better. 
And I think that's what emergency medicine is. Like you step in, you have to save a person's life, you change their course, you have them to feel better for that moment. And then they're on to do what they have to do next. And I think that was a calling for me for emergency medicine. And, um, and it has allowed me to do so many other things that, you know, that's within medicine and outside of medicine as well. Now you talked about earlier coming from Newark and what it was like to grow up in that community, especially back when you were growing up. What is it like to to take what you've created of yourself and give back to your your community at home? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's an answer. I think growing up, like I didn't have a, a perfect childhood. I, I was probably part of the problem growing up as a teenager. I was finding myself in trouble often. I did things that was full of mischief and misleading. You know, I, didn't, I grew up in a single parent home. I didn't have a dad figure to sort of look up to. So I often turned to the streets to kind of model my behavior mm. after. Um, and so I found myself in trouble often. And, uh, but I, I in, in the gut of my being, like I knew I wanted more, right? I knew I wanted more in life, but it was not that many shining examples of real possibilities in my neighborhood. And so now to be on this other side and to be a, a, a person that can be a concrete image to everyone, not only to Newark, to all communities, right. to be a concrete image to say, hey, you know, I can serve as a purpose, um, a purpose-driven situation here for, for individuals to say, look, I came from certain circumstances. I've been through certain, certain challenges. I had, you know, these struggles. I had these obstacles. I had these moments. And, and to serve as a, um, as a person to say, I can identify with you, what you're going through, to me, it's like, you know, it's now part of the solution instead of the problem. Right. And um, and so I remember vividly of, of going through medical school years and not having too many people who looked like me, who came from the same walks that I came from, and just trying to grab a hold of something that was that had texture, where everything was this this kind of everything was a, a a an amorphous situation. It was an amorphous mass. There was no no shape to it, no form to it, because there was nobody out there from Newark who did what we did right. at that time. So it made it you know it made it even more challenging because you start to say to yourself, well, maybe I'm insane to think that this is possible because no one from my neighborhood ever has, has done this mm. before. Now, Dr. Davis, I want to circle back to something you referenced earlier, which was dealing with COVID as an ER physician. What was that like? None of us, none of us, none of us was prepared for COVID. When it first occurred, I, re- I remember specifically March 12, 2020 was the lockdown. And so we were in medicine. The first thing that I remember is like, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what to do. We had no clue. We were afraid. We were, but at the same time, what I, what I love about medicine and so many people on the front lines is that they ran to the fire. Hmm. And they run away from the fire. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't know people were coming in. They were looking, clinically, they were looking well. They were just talking full of sentences. And you would put them on their oxygen, their post-oxygen, see the oxygen exchange. And they're like 70%. Yeah. And, you know, the normal oxygen exchange is 95 and above. Wow. And that's 70%. Mm-hmm. And so a person would talk to me, and instead of it being sort of a crescendo or, or a progressive movement towards 
them going into distress, they will go from looking perfect, you turn around and they're in full cardiac arrest. Wow. And so there's, there was no progression. There was no evolutionary process. It was like, hey, yeah, I'm okay. I just had a little bit of a cough. You're like, well, how are you talking to me? You're exchanging oxygen at 60%. And so that was scary. And then we didn't know how to approach people. We didn't know if we should intubate folks if they weren't breathing because of the spread of the virus. And, I mean, there were so many unanswered questions. But um, what I enjoyed about what we were doing is that we took every precautionary step that we could think of at the same time, everyone showed up for work. But with that, with that, you know, I lost a colleague in the emergency department. He was one of the first people to, in our department to develop COVID. Uh, 15 nurses were stricken with COVID, two of their husbands passed away. Uh, we lost another gastroenterologist um, uh, from my hospital from COVID. On um, April 22nd, my brother developed a fever. April 23rd, he expired. April 24th, we got the results that he had COVID of 2020. And um, so, you know, it, it hit me both personally and professionally. And uh, it, it really moved me uh, to do more. Uh, just because I, I always feel that awareness is power and that you have to know and not know it's not justifiable. It's not the right answer. So it moved me to do more in the community. I started, you know, um, developing COVID testing centers so that people could be tested for COVID so that they can have knowledge of it so that they can't spread it and inadvertently contract it, you know, uh, through a spread. And so I think, you know, uh, now we're at a place which I always felt confident about that we would get to a place where this pandemic that we face and the loved ones that we've lost, um, that we will get to a place that we will conquer this. And we are and we are there. We are now at a moment where we're about to reopen the country. Right. <laughs> it's just it's just it's such a um, you know, it's such a celebration, you know, but but at the same time, you know, it's 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 not lost to me that we we have seen so many of our loved ones lose the battle. It's not lost to me that India is still struggling with the pandemic, and uh, it's not lost to me that I love both personal and professional ones to this virus. And so I um, believe in getting tested. I believe in the vaccination, uh, hands down. And medical treatment, we have, we are light years ahead of when we first started. We know that we try not to intimate people. We know that steroids work. We know that antiviral medications work, you know, that monoclonal antibodies may work, and we know vaccinations work. So, you know, I know there's some anti-vaxxers out there, but I'm just prayful and hopeful that everyone will get vaccinated because if we can achieve herd immunity, we can prevent this virus from going through further mutations and then becoming resistant to the vaccine, right? That's what we don't see. But, um, I mean, this is in my, my think tank. Like COVID is something that is emergency medicine, and for me, part of the public health sector is making sure that the community have all full opportunity to take advantage of getting tested, getting vaccinated, being fully aware, and knowing what to do to prevent any potential uh, spread of the virus. Well, I'm so sorry for the losses that you have endured during this time. And I also want to thank you so much for your service and being in the front lines because this has been obviously something that's very difficult for the entire world. And we would not have 
made it as far as we have made it, if not for people literally sacrificing their lives like you on the front lines. So thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate it. And then, and I'm lucky. If you're, you're, if you're one of the few who live in a situation where you don't have to go to work, where you have space within your home, think of the many people, often think of the people in, in Bronx, New York, which was probably hit the mm -hmm. hardest, where eight, seven, eight, nine people live in one apartment. So they can't socially distance themselves. And they may not be frontline workers, but they're essential workers. So they have to go and work for Uber, or they have to go and be a taxi driver, or they have to go work in the deli, and they have to go work in the day-to-day -day services that we all depend on, that we benefit from. And they were unable to, um, you know, to social distance and to take time off and do Zoom calls and work from home. Instead, you know, four or five people in an apartment out of nine lost their lives to this, uh, to COVID. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, I think one thing that it has done, is it has humanized a lot of moments, but it also has really brought upon an appreciation of just the simple things in life. Just the simple things. Yep. Just like being able to see somebody outside without a mask. Like, oh my goodness, like we don't have to wear a mask outside. And I can see you and I can shake your hand. I mean, yeah. holy cow, you're vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. I often laugh. I say, hi, I'm Dr. Davis. I'm vaccinated. Like, that's how we introduce ourselves, yeah, right? that is. <laughs> so yep. it's, it's um, I think, and I, and I really think we're all the better for it. I really think as a society, we all would be all the better for it, you know, um, in general, just because it's a reflective moment of all of us to really sit back and just appreciate the simple things in life. Absolutely. Now, I want to talk a little bit about giving back, right? So as we talk about appreciating the simple things in life, I think something that oftentimes many of us who have these very busy lives and these demanding careers may not have a moment to think about how do I give back to my community, whatever community that is. And you have been able to do that in a number of ways. So talk to me a little bit about how you make sure you make time to positively influence others, especially our young people. I mean, giving back is one of the biggest blessings you can do for yourself. You know, I think of people like Dr. Linda Shee from Seton Hall, um, but my science majors, they know Dr. Linda Shee if you went to school last century like I did. Um, you know, Carla Dixon was another instrumental person who was at Seton Hall. She was uh, the uh, counselor and coordinator for pre-medical, pre-dental plus program. And I think of people like that, and they gave of themselves freely and willingly. And that was the Three Doctors Foundation. We, Dr. Hunt and Dr. Jenkins, we formed the Three Doctors Foundation our first year of residency. So you got to understand, we formed a true 501c3 legit legalized foundation. Wow with student loans, <laughs> right? So we were the more, we was probably the poorest philanthropist that you ever knew, right? We had student loans and here we are forming a foundation to give back. And part of it just originated organically. It's just happened. We were, we graduated, we were on an Oprah show. We were doing these speaking engagements and speaking events in the community. People were giving us love offering, offerings. We accumulated maybe a thousand dollars. And we were going to give it away as a scholarship. We say, you know what? Instead of doing that, let's try to form something long-term. So we put, just like we did when we made the pact, we put our minds together. We said, let's try to get some legal help and form a foundation. And, and we did. And we started our foundation. 
And from there, it, it has grown into 20 plus years. Uh, we recently celebrated the Three Doctors Foundation. Oh, wow. Congratulations. So, thank you. Thank you. And, and, and you know, and it's, um, to me, it's, it's, the, it's the simple phrase of you can't aim for what you cannot see. You can't expect a young mind or any mind to imagine being some, becoming something that they cannot see. Mm. And so our goal and still is to put a, a, a face to health and education, to put a face to it that people say, instead of being this sports player, instead of being this sort of musician, instead of right. being this artist, I could be like the three doctors. And right. I mean, I got the most heartfelt Instagram message two days ago from these young five men who graduated from Harry uh, Medical or Dental School saying that they read our book, The Pack, that we wrote uh, shortly after being on the Oprah show. And they made a promise to become doctors and they did it and they were inspired by us. Now, listen, I wasn't there to see their journey, but it was just that texture that I was speaking about earlier. It went from being something that was amorphous, that was maybe a thought, a possibility to something that became concrete and real probability. And yeah. so they were able to wrap their arms around it. And that's all you need sometimes, just that in mind. So giving back is just that. And and it's also, and I'm not saying that, like, I thought of this, but it's legacy. Like, what do you stand mm. for? So I read something interesting the other day saying that we all start off getting a job, right? You get a job, get a job, get a job. So I was working at McDonald's, working at McDonald's, right? I had a job. I was promoted to um, assistant crew chief and then assistant manager. So I went from okay. regular employee to crew chief to assistant manager. Then these two guys wanted to make this promise to become a doctor. So I said, okay, I, I'll make this promise with you. So I left McDonald's, right? And I know it sounds crazy, but I, I thought McDonald's wasn't bad at the time. Not that I didn't think beyond McDonald's, and there's nothing wrong with working at McDonald's, but this was sure. where, where I came from, right? So now I was getting a career, right? I went from a job to a career. But what's bigger than a career? Because this is what your parents say. You get a career. What's bigger than a career is getting – Finding your purpose. Mm -hmm. Find your purpose. If you find your purpose, what you find out is that it then dovetails into other aspects of the world, of your life, that becomes a situation where your, your work is not truly work. And that's what the giving back has done for me, is found my purpose. Like I wear a lot of different hats, but one of the biggest joys is the giving back, serving as catalyst, being something that's of a sense of, of hope and redemption for so many other people. And it helps fuel my soul. It helps fuel my purpose. It helps fuel my presence. It helps to make me get up every day and keep going at it because of the demands, you know, you get exhausted sometimes, but at the same token, having that purpose-driven life is it. So it goes, so purpose has now superseded career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love that. So you briefly mentioned these, the pack, one mm -hmm. of your books, uh, but there's a number of books. Yeah. So tell me how many books are we at now? Which ones are the bestsellers? <laughs> how many bestsellers do we have? Because it, it feels like you really have accomplished just so much beyond yeah. becoming a doctor, which in and of itself is quite the accomplishment. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'd say it's like, that was the goal, become a doctor. That was it. Once I achieved that, I looked at these other two guys and said, okay, I've done what I promised we would do here. Like, I'm done. There's no more for me to do. Then, like I said, our 
story appeared on the front page of the Star Ledger, New Jersey newspaper, Star Ledger. And from there, Oprah called one day. I was washing dishes the way I like to tell the story. And then I have a dishwasher, <laughs> and they said, this is Oprah. And it wasn't Oprah, but it was a producer, but it always sounded better to say it was Oprah. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, Oprah had a big TV show at the time. Like, she was the number one TV show. She was like the Ellen of then, you know, like right. Ellen is now. Yeah. And so she wanted us on our sh- her show. You know, I ran to the airport. I said, Oprah, they let me right through TSA. They put me on the plane. Uh, we were on a show. She touched my leg. I fell in love. She did not. And, um, you know, that was my Oprah story. And then from there, <laughs> it was from there, it, it snowballed uh, from the Star Ledger, Oprah, to the New York Times, to Washington Post, these articles. And then we had an opportunity to write a book called The Pack, P-A-C-T, The Pack. And The Pack was the answer. It really was a call to action in the sense that there were so many youth out there who didn't have anything to say that this could be something that they can do simply because there were no material out there. There was nothing in book formats or reality formats at the time that said, you from this community can go on to become this. And so, and I remember being that. I was like, when moments where I wanted to quit in college and medical school, I said, man, if I just knew somebody did it, that I can that I can say, I know I can see myself being like that person, and then then I, I will stick it out. But I think this is this this isn't real, right? And right. so you know the pack became that, and to this day, I mean, it's over a million copies sold, became wow. a New York Times bestseller. Um, and and I tell you, if it, if it would have just stopped, if it would have just stopped that graduation, that would have been fulfilled. But the fact that the blessings just kept coming, and then. The pact, and it became required reading for so many schools. Like even my son is reading the book now at his school. You know, like oh, wow. you know, no, that's my dad. Like that's kind of that's, <laughs> that's cool, right? But to think that, you know, what I'm trying to say, like it's just, yeah. it's it's something I never planned for. But these are the blessings that come. These are the others. This is what's on the other side of quitting. Right. You get what I'm saying? Because there's many right. times I wanted to quit, and you understand, when you're about to quit. It's like right then and there, success is the next day. Mm. reward is the next day. The accomplishment is the next day. And so I just planned on a medical degree. I never planned on becoming a New York Times bestselling author. Right. After the pack became We Beat the Street. We Beat the Street was a, a youth adaptation of the pack. And that became a New York Times bestseller. To this day, kids, uh, eighth grade, uh, a group of eighth graders from Illinois emailed me earlier and reached out on me on social media saying they just read We Beat the Street. And I love when they just quote certain things from the book, like, how's your foot? Because I talked about how I broke my foot as a kid. How's your foot? <laughs> and then, you know, we wrote a book called The Bond. And The Bond was our growing up without, thought, without our dads. And we connected with our fathers and identifying with their struggles and what they were going through. And to realize, like, the, you know, our dads were not demons. They had their challenges as you. And they humanized them and the struggle that they had. And they grew up, grew up without their dads and the cycles of just fatherlessness. And, and I think, you know, we are at a place in civilization now, especially because we're so connected with, with technology that we're able to now cheer each other on to be there for our families in ways that we never did, did before years ago, last century ago. Yeah. And um, I wrote a book. Um, called Living and Dying in Brick City. And Living and Dying in Brick City was a journey of my 
cases and stories that I accumulated from working in the heart of Newark at the same hospital I was born in at Beth Israel in Newark, wow. New Jersey. And just some of the frustrations that I had from the public health sector and just sort of battling that and how to sort of even the playing field and to really bring to life what it looks like when we talk about the um, the issues involved around health and the social determinants. Like, why can't you go to the doctor? Why can't you take your blood pressure medication? Why don't you um, stop smoking? Why don't you stop drinking? Why don't you stop doing drugs? Like, just really getting to the aspects of the social determinants of health and even the mental health components of it. And, but giving it real life stories because I relate mm-hmm. to real life stories. You can talk the jargon to me as much as you want, but if it doesn't have something that's relatable, then I'm lost. Mm-hmm. And so really making it something that's digestible and, um, you know, living and dying in Brick City, it, it was that sort of my cathartic moment of just really dealing with some of the frustrations that I saw and dealt with when it came to healthcare. Um, but right. in a way that was relatable to so many other people and their battles and understanding of the healthcare. And then my last book called The Stuff, I wrote with uh, Derek Jeter's sister, Charlie Jeter. Um, oh, wow. And uh, it's the 11 elements that we all possess to, to kind of really be in the best you that you can be. Like, So I set out on this journey because it was interesting to me to see people who were diagnosed with cancer, people who lost their legs and limbs and I can't even run a marathon. You have people with no legs, with prosthetics, mm-hmm. running marathons. Like, right. how in the heck do you do that? <laughs> so yes. What, yes. what are the answers? And so we did a lot of research to see and came up with these sort of 11 elements that we all have within us. And you just have to let them develop and be born and tap into them to kind of be anything uh, or to pursue or achieve things in life. And so... To say that, you know, we have the books or I have the books and I have the foundation, and, you know, practice in medicine. Like this is all well beyond anything that I planned. And uh, but these are all the blessings that subsequently just came from sort of going after something that seemed to be impossible in the moment. But just really believing and leaning on the fact that I had a support system that I was going to tap into and, and being there for them as well. And uh, it made this all came tr- come true. And and now the other aspect, like, so this is all a dream, right? Like you have the graduation, but author, foundation, and, and television, right. like to be on TV and doing a lot of television in- interviews now. With I do a lot of um, medical moments with Dr. Oz, and CNN, Today Show, Good Morning America, and um, and also to be a speaker, like to travel the country now virtually, but I. I speak everything from <clears throat> health components to inspiration aspects on the social determinants of health and health inequalities, health inequities, to, to speaking about even, you know, the, the conversation that is so uncomfortable is racism. It's a very uncomfortable conversation for so many of us. But, you know, speaking about racism and how it has played its role in medicine. And, and I think, you know, us seeing George Floyd murdered recently uh, yesterday we celebrated a uh, year. year, but yeah. seeing George Floyd murdered, I think the pandemic, what that caused on beyond the unfortunate deaths is that we all were sitting still and we all saw a person net kneeled on for nine minutes yep. and 29 seconds. And you could not turn your head. You cannot. Yes. You were forced to sit there and see it. So yes. I think it really reached us all in a way that 
because we all have busy lives, but now we're sitting at home because it's a pandemic and we all, yes. we all got to see what happened there. Right. And so now we see that there has to be change and there has to be social adjustment. And, and I think, you know, there's no pointing fingers at anyone. You know, there's mm-hmm. no pointing fingers, but it's just that, as the saying goes, when you know better, you do better. And so yes. that's who we are. Right. I love all of that. And I can keep talking to you for hours, but I have to be mindful that you are a busy man with many important things to do. So I want to thank you for taking the time out to join us on this podcast. I want to thank you for being such a valuable member of the Seton Hall community, again, for being on the front lines. And I want to give you a moment to share with the audience any ways in which they can learn more about you, the three doctors, and even potentially connect with you or the three doctors on on social media yeah by all means and i'm very simple like i like i I think i was sharing with you earlier i just learned how to use share your screen on zoom i was so excited (laughs) so (laughs) to follow me on social media is at dr samson davis that's it nothing no underscore no dots or periods is at doctor uh, at dr samson davis uh, is my handle for Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And the same for the three doctors. It's uh, at three doctors. I uh, spell the word three out. And that's the same handle for uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So one of the joys of being so young in the game that we were the first <laughs> to have social media. Uh, so we saw the birth of it. So we were able to snatch those names in the beginning of it all. So uh, pretty, nice. pretty simple names to, to sort of remember and latch on to. And we'll include those names in our show notes. So our audience will be able to just take a look at our show notes and access all of that information that you shared. This episode has been inspirational. I've got a book list and certainly we have our many are one celebration to look forward to in which you will be our most distinguished alumnus, our honoree for the special occasion. So once again, thank you so much for being an active member of the Seton Hall community and for sharing all of your insights and your words of wisdom with the Seton Hall community. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. I've enjoyed our conversation. Dr. Davis is just one of more than 100,000 alumni who demonstrate what great minds can do with a Seton Hall education. Do not miss the Seton Hall 2021 Many Are One virtual celebration on June 17th with Dr. Davis and guest MC Matthew Lachlan, voice of the New Jersey Devils and one of our previous guests here on the Pirate's Eye podcast, episode 10. You can gear up for the celebration and register for the event by visiting www.shu.edu slash one. If you're listening to this podcast after the event, don't worry. Head over to the site and learn more about the 35th annual celebration in support of the Alumni Endowed Scholarship Fund, which helps us carry forward the Seton Hall legacy by directly impacting the next generation of proud pirates. Share the news of this podcast with your friends. Be sure to follow us on social media at Seton Hall Alumni. And of course, if you know of a pirate we should have our eye on, do not hesitate to email us at alumni at shu.edu. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Seton Hall Pirate's Eye Podcast.